This episode of All the President's Minutes is brought to you by Bella Catering. Bellacatering.com.au is where you can find Sydney's best catering company. And now they're doing home delivery. Um, Check out what they've got. Get to it fast, Sydney. Victoria has already shut down, which is good. (laughs) They're acting like idiots down in Victoria, but we are no less idiots here in New South Wales. So my dear friends and listeners and folks, you of course have come across folks who are not doing the right thing with COVID-19. You need to contact Bella Catering while you can. Get the people to your house now that you want to visit. Check their temperature before they get in the door. Make sure that they're hand sanitized. Feed them with some delicious Bella Catering food. Bellacatering.com.au. They are responsible for the show. This week, we must thank them. We must love Glenn and Maria and thank their team and everything they do. Now, let's get on to the show. You know, removing his shows is a step, um, but it's not like it's not the the final answer. I, I think what we need to move towards is is creating indigenous content on these subscription platforms and a focus on indigenous creators and um, and and content. Yeah, I do want to talk yeah. to you a bit more about that in a moment. Tali, if I can ask you, you initially liked Jonah from Tonga. Why is that? Um, so I myself am half Samoan and half Italian. And so I never saw Samoa or the Pacific represented on TV. And I love TV and films so, so very much. And so I never saw myself, but I always looked for myself. And so when Summer Heights High originally came out and there was a character, Jonah from Tonga, and it's the smallest moment that resonated with me. It was his dad was picking him up after school. He had a white station wagon and you he just had that Pacific father discipline that all Pacific Islanders know. And so there was a part of me that I was like, yes, this is a character. This is me. I can see myself on TV right now. But as I watched the show continue, the initial excitement quickly turned into uncomfortability because I started to realise that how Jonah was portrayed by Chris Lilly as a white man in brownface kind of perpetuated stereotypes of Pacific Islanders is that, you know, they're not good at school, they don't have career options. And that was a lot of the things that, you know, obviously that Chris Lilly was trying to address, but I just feel that because the joke was about Pacific Islanders. It's like we became the joke rather than getting to laugh at the joke. And that's when I started to really feel uncomfortable with the show and it became really problematic for me. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to All the President's Minutes. I'm your host, Blake Howard. Uh, So weirdly, at the time that we're recording this, so not very long um, before you're going to be hearing it, uh, my son was going to be born and I was doing a podcast, a really cool podcast on a Sydney community radio station called Gaggle of Geeks, my friend Sophie Lai. Um, Maria Lewis, former guest of this show, two-time guest of this show and uh, co-host of Josie and the Podcast on the One Heat Minute Productions feed, handed the baton to me on that show and then I felt like I needed to hand the baton to someone else. And at the time, there was 
a competition on Australia's youth network radio station for like the next film voice because the previous voice, Mark Vanell, who'd been basically part of the furniture there for 10 years, was like, I'm too fucking busy. I can't do this anymore and moved on to bigger and better things. And so this void was created. And of course they did this thing, an open call to the entire like Sydney film Twitter slash Australian film Twitter community. And we're like, yeah, we've, we've got this like the most sought after and probably most listened to film voice in the entire country to open up. Let's open it up. And everyone applied for it, including yours truly. Like every single goddamn person applied for it and gave their best foot forward. And they then selected five individuals at the time. And... At the time, I remember, you know, kind of like butthurt as everyone is going like, oh, who the fuck are these people? But one of those people was so fucking instantly charming. I cannot remember for the life of me the movie or the show that this person's audition was. I, I just didn't. I didn't remember any of it. But I remembered at that moment, and this is like a few months apart from one another, my exit from Gaggle of Geeks um, temporarily at that time um, and and this person's audition. They didn't get the spot, but I was like, who the fuck was that girl in that audition who was super fucking charming, who like sounded funny, great banter, and that they didn't choose? Because obviously with everything, it's who the fuck don't they choose for the gig? And I found out that it was the lovely person I'm talking to today who now at the time was just a producer in radio, now is a presenter, a producer, a reporter for Australia's biggest uh, uh, national broadcaster um, who has been really a kind of incredibly positive voice in recent sort of, you know, some real sort of social scrutiny of the Australian psyche of like what should one do with had to respect our multicultural society and also still is just one of my favorite people to talk about pop culture. Because if you thought that I had passion for things like heat or all the president's men, she could have that same passion for RuPaul's drag race. And I just couldn't understand. And that's okay. That's okay for me not to understand, but she's absolutely one of my favorite people. We don't get to chat nearly enough, but when I do get a chance to interact with her, I get really excited. She's my friend and I'm going to, fucking spell her name right so you can follow her um and i'm going to say her name right i'm going to spell her name right um and 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 i'm going to tell her a little story about that in just a moment but it's my distinct pleasure to talk to my friend tali alatea welcome to all the president's minutes like can i just say <laughs> it is so hilarious that you remember my triple j audition because obviously right now everyone has discovered me as someone who can talk <laughs> pop culture because obviously what happened with Chris Lilly and Jonah from Togger. And I am like, no, guys, I talk pop culture constantly. It was in fact, it's so funny that you immediately saw something that a lot of people did not see. And you, and I will remind you that the show that I reviewed was 13 Reasons Why, which was so funny as you were setting that up because every part, and I specifically chose 13 Reasons Why as my audition thing because I thought if I can make a show about, about you know, teenage this, suicide, suicide yep. like talking about the issues and talking about how problematic it is while also p poking fun of how like some of the stupid things of this show happened. I thought maybe, just maybe they'll see, they'll see something in me. They obviously Mate. didn't, you did. Um, and now I like, when I tell people, people are like, oh, I didn't even know that that happened. And I was like, 
How did Blake? How did Blake? <laughs> I remembered. I listened. I wanted to hear who they were choosing. And to be brutally honest, yep. I was like, "Look, I was kind of I'd aged my. I, like, no offense to my age, but I was like, I'm probably a little bit older than this. If this was, a, you know, a few years ago, potentially yep. would have been. But I wanted to listen. And what happened was the 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 least disappointing thing was hearing you. If it was oh, someone, not very nice. because I was like, oh, she's really good. She's fun. She's good. She's smart. The banter. The disappointing thing yeah. is when you hear people who are, who suck and you're like, oh, <laughs> don't give that person the gig because they suck. And there's other people who are great and you are one yeah. of those. So it's great to talk to you. It's so funny. Two things I'm going to say. Folks listening, I handed the baton to my previous podcast, um, uh, Gaggle of Geeks, who I was co-hosting with Sophie Lai, to Tali literally days before my son was born. It was then a year later yeah. on his birthday that I launched the final episode of One Hit Minute. And in just a few days time from the time that we're recording, he turns two. So it's a pretty crazy couple of years. Like it's, it's been an insane yeah. time. And Tali very recently, which I will link in the description of the podcast and on our website, oneheatminute.com when you actually see it, recently wrote a piece about pronunciation and getting her name wrong and her name, uh, you know, Olitia is spelled mm. A-U-A-L-I-I-T-I-A. And so her surname, and that is, and um, and she goes by Tali or Tale, depending on, there's a couple of different <laughs> spellings, but she was recently just wrote a really great piece, which is really forthright about a couple of times appearing on the national broadcaster of this country, her mm. employer, and them getting her name wrong several times mm. <laughs> on yeah. TV, no less, which, which, which sucks. Yeah. It was one of the things where, like, it happens so often that, like, and this is the thing, people will just be like, oh, it's just your name spelt wrong. If you've got a difficult name, like, you shouldn't be so sensitive about it. But the thing that I really wanted to highlight is that, like, generally when people get my name wrong is the off-handed casual racism that goes along with the getting it wrong, which yes. is generally just like, a, well, your name shouldn't be so difficult. Well, you should change it. And, like, obviously working in the media, I've had, like, even as a radio producer, like, you are the gatekeeper to people getting, like, PR companies getting their story onto the radio. And I've had PR people tell me that I should change my name to make <laughs> their job easier. And I'm like... Why then would I then want to bring any of your story onto what is going on here? Yeah. And it's just so freaking annoying. And so, yeah, that when the last time it happened, I was just like, this is why so many yeah. communities in Australia who are underrepresented at best, misrepresented at worst, do not trust the media because they hear this stuff. And I was just like, and they feel so alone. And it was just me trying to say, hey, I'm also inside and I also feel it. Um, Michelle Law wrote this really, really great tweet where she referred to herself as a beautiful Trojan horse that she thought that she could change the whole process <laughs> from within. And so ever since I saw that, I was like, maybe I too could be that beautiful Trojan horse who tries to affect change. It's, it's so funny, but it is purely a respect thing. So when I read it, you know, mm. yours, it, it just made so much sense and it's obvious. And the sign of disrespect doesn't just happen for people yeah. whose names are difficult as well. It's, it happens for people who were just blatantly disrespectful to all people. So for example, yeah. I work at uh, my day job. Uh, our, our emails are arranged with our surname first yeah. and then our first name or the letter of your first name. And I know your email yeah. is the same. Yeah. And so, Although, do you know what I discovered? Technically, the ABC email, you can do it either way. Oh, you can do it, yeah. Well, no so, one ever told me, so, but yeah. <laughs> so, so some places you can flip it. 
And yeah. but always when you look at it, because everyone's email, their surname is first. Yeah. People, it's always going, hi, Howard. Hi, Howard. Um, yeah, hi, Howard. you would have. Because I have the multiple yeah. first name thing. Yeah. Which is, an, yeah. Which, is, which is annoying and it's fine. But what happened was like, I read your thing and I just had this, obviously yours is in a much wider dialogue, but I'm like, you know that someone is disrespecting you when they've met you, when they yep. know that your name is Blake and yep. then you email them and like the next 10 emails, they call you Howard. You're like, Hey, yep. Mofo, <laughs> I'm your like customer right now. You're doing like, like I'm yep. paying you to do something. You can't even get my name right. It's in my yep. signature. I sign off it with it. <laughs> like it's every, it's like, I literally started calling a person by their surname on purpose. I was like, okay, cool. From yeah. now on, I'll call you your surname yeah. too, mother. Yeah. I, I love to, and this is the thing, and this is like what the, is very clear. That's that, the Michael yeah. Jordan, Petty King, like last dance. Yes. Like, and so I took it personally, Talia. I took it personally. <laughs> I was like, this is like, but this is what's so funny. And this is like the response to it is of course people with dyslexia or kind of learning, like if they see your name, like we are not jumping on people who have some kind of learning problem. My name has a lot of vowels in it. I know. I can't like, believe that someone would even say that, but of course. Well, and this weird. is what I was getting, but this is what was so funny is like, I have known that my surname has a lot of vowels in it. It's like, like nine letters, two of them are consonants, <laughs> the rest of ours. Fun fact, when I was little, I always wanted to be a celebrity, not just the same, but because I would be the celebrity on um, Wheel of Fortune and because you would only be able to choose L and T before L &T. the dinger came up and it was just like, no, this is all about. <laughs> like, I know that my name, if you have never seen it before, chances are you won't be able to pronounce it unless you are Samoan or New Zealand. New Zealand is very good yeah, at it. Good at it. And, and, so, and so this is the thing is that I look at it like if someone – I tries and they honestly try and you can tell when someone tries and they get it wrong, then of course I'm not mad because like I'm not perfect when I say people's names that I haven't said for the first time. And like even in my job, I say a lot of specific names and I will get there and I will like practice, practice, practice. And then live radio happens and then I will like just put something wrong and then I'll stumble over it or do it again. And I always feel so incredibly bad about it. And you can tell when someone is trying and when they are not. And it's the people who do not try because they have decided they don't need to try. That it's like, you need to assimilate rather than to getting on my page. That's who I'm mad at. And it was so frustrating that people couldn't see that. I'm like, no, I'm not going off at the dyslexic people. I'm not going <laughs> off at the people I'm trying. Just like basic respect for those who can't sort their life out. And I was just like, cool. So, yeah, trolling. All right, people. Love it. Oh, my goodness. What a year yeah. for it. What a year for Yeah, exactly. And in, this, exactly. And in, in our country, um, you know, I've spoken to a lot of international guests and the local guests are like, well, you know, from kind of November last year, the entire country's on fire. And then we roll yeah. from like the cinders and ashes and already this huge, incredible uphill battle yeah. for rural Australia, like to get yeah. back on its economic footing, a whole bunch of tourist destinations, mm -hmm. just, you know, ashes. Yeah all that sort of stuff. And then it's like, roll that straight into a pandemic and, <laughs> yeah. and, and then straight into social upheaval. And then the same thing is that it's the flat out ignorance and then the disrespect of, there is something deeply disrespectful about ignorance. Yeah. And yeah. right now when we've got, you know, everything at our fingertips, 
to not be yeah. ignorant. It's just like, it's, it's saying, saying, saying you don't know, yeah. or you're not sure if that's exaggerated or you have, yeah. you, you know, you, you don't know what the sources are or mm -hmm. something is a total fair thing to, mm -hmm. to get you to educate yourself for. I haven't read that or I haven't seen that. Can you point me to yeah. somewhere I can learn that? It's like, yeah. but man, you know, right now is a time where people's ears need to be open. Yeah. And I think a lot of people just aren't. And this is the thing too, is like, no one is perfect. No one knows everything that is right. And we all make mistakes. Like even in the article, I didn't know that the person that I was quoting apparently has a really like PT Barnum. He said this, like, he's like, I don't care what you write about me, just spell my name right. And that always resonated with me yes. when I heard that. And I knew that, you know, that was the greatest showman with Hugh Jackman. So I was just like, cool, if Hugh Jackman played this character, this is all good. And I never went anything further than you, surface You didn't level. research so, more than about so, PT Barnum well, being a dirtbag. Yeah, exactly. And so this is the thing is I was just like, I remember that quote. I'm writing about my name. That name works out thing. And then like it's been pointed out about his, you know, racist past and, you know, how he treated, you know, black um, people and First Nations people as a part of what was happening in the zoo. And I was like, I did not know that. So I went through and I unlearned what I thought about him in the same way of when I watched Disclosure on Netflix. It's very easy <laughs> to, when you are watching something through a different set of eyes that you're not used to, is like actually watching Disclosure made me think, oh my God, because as they were showing different representations of transgender in the media, my head was thought of, oh, wait, Ace Ventura is really problematic. And it wasn't until they showed that scene where everyone is vomiting, like a, a, such a visceral reaction from everyone there. I was like, oh, my God, if you're a transgender person and you watch that, that would be absolutely heartbreaking. Yes. And I had never thought about that before. So I am also in the process of, you know, unlearning and relearning and just being a more respectful person. And which goes to your point, there is no excuse not to be ignorant in 2020 is to challenge yourself. And this is the thing is just sit in your discomfort. Like, realize that even, you know, me as a brown woman has also <laughs> had privilege as well and acknowledge that and just go, okay, how can we make this better? And the thing is, is I just really hope that it's not just me who's doing it, but it is the big, you know, film execs and the TV execs who are doing it too, who aren't just going, oh, sh you know, shit, we better get rid of that episode that had blackface and people will say, you know, we did a good job. Is like, no, I want you to be really reflective and you make better choices as well because you have no excuse. Yeah, it's, it's it, insane. It, there's, there's, right now there are surface level reactions to things. Yeah. And then there's like, there's, and then there's like, fundamental systemic stuff like it's you know mm. um three billboards uh down in ebbing missouri is a problematic movie yeah. very problematic but it's like yeah. the best thing about it was that francis mcdormand won an oscar got up on stage and then stood there in, on like one of the biggest shows in the world with an audience of a billion people and said mm. okay everyone inclusion writer all right so yeah. You know, what you're going to do now is that women and people of color are going to be representative yeah. on your things and you're going to demand that that's the case because yeah. if we want equity, if we want a seat at this mm -hmm. table, yeah, like let's talk turkey. If you're going to get hired, yeah. say this. And so yeah. it's like, yes, the movie's problematic. Yes, whatever. Like you can talk about that yeah. art as being a problematic piece of art, whatever. But it's like there's an opportunity there to 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 tackle something systemic, yeah. probably greater than the piece of art is doing. It's like the dialogue mm -hmm. that that causes and then, you know, the positive ramifications of that interaction. Yeah. And so 
It's like the guy, I can't remember his name for the life of me. I can look it up in just a moment, but it's not, it's immaterial what his name is. It's like the guy who was playing Cleveland on Family Guy is a white guy. Yeah. And he's yes. like, I don't want to voice. I did not know that. He's like, yep. I don't yep. want to voice Cleveland anymore. Yeah. He's been doing it for 20 years. Mm. 20 years. <laughs> I've yep. been doing this for 20 years. And now I'm done because it's wrong. Yeah. Great. Just, mm, it's yep. like. Nice gesture, but also mm. that's just like taking a piss in a cyclone. It yeah. means nothing. nothing. Like it's yeah. you've got 20 years of a career, of money, of all that yeah. stuff. And it's like, and, and guess what? Not really yeah. a problem. You got cast. You've reflected. Yeah. It's good. It's a nice gesture. What is yeah. bigger is perhaps the next time that they're producing a show at yeah. a network – and yeah. they look at who the cast is and mm. people want to like impose that, you know, there's some representation behind the scenes. Yeah. But they go, you've got six black characters, but you only hired one black person. Like, is there a reason that you haven't hired six <laughs> black that. people? Like, how did we get to that? Like it's the yeah. studio that needs to do that. It's a nice yeah. gesture, whatever. But it's like, but, it's that mm. doesn't fix the problem. Yeah, exactly. And that was the point that I was making when I went on to the mix with Jonah from Tonga as well, yes. is like that was pulled, that series, Chris Lilly's show, because of his depictions of race. And he, like Chris Lilly, did, you know, brown face, he did yellow face, he did black face, he's done all the faces. But the criticism that was leveled at Jonah from Tonga when it was brought out as its own standalone show in 2014 is exactly the same criticism that happened in 2020. So what changed? It was the movement changed. And all of a sudden, people just got really, like, really freaking guilty and started doing, like, actually listening to things that they had heard. Nothing in it was new. Nothing had changed. And that's what you mean about you pissing in a cyclone. It's like the, oh, what's the thing that we get lots of complaints about? Let's address that now and let that be our token thing to show that we are changed as a, you know, as a company or as a group or anything like that. And it's just like, no, that's not, it's not enough. Like you need to also sit in your discomfort and you need to figure out like, what was it that was with your organization that in your example about, you know, well, the Cleveland show is that you all thought it was all right to have a show centered on a black family and only have one black person. No, Who thought that was all right? Yeah, no, but it's like not just one, but it's, it's not like just one year. Yeah, yeah. For 20 <laughs> continually, like, like 20 every years. single year. Yeah, yeah. And, and it's like, and, you know, I, I did hear a really funny comedian, Tim Dillon, talking about this subject, and he just said, when you think of Cleveland though, like he's not exactly, he's, he's not exactly like what is even more problematic about it is like, he's not like a black role model. He's a douchebag who's friends with a loser like Peter Griffin and a questionable, yeah. like weird, like roofie giving yeah. out pedophile quagmire. Yeah. It's like, like, yeah. like, like a date rapist and a fat loser, uh, his two best mates. And you're like, it's not, yeah. and you're like, I mean, if the white guy doesn't want to do that, like name the black actors that are like raising their hand immediately. Like, yeah, man, that's me. That's me for is, sure. Is the thing is, is the black actors are probably raising their hand going, what, there's a job and you're actually considering me? Yes, please. Yeah, true. I will do this. And this is the problem. And it was like the same with Apu and Hank Azaria on The Simpsons. Yeah. The problem with these depictions when they're played by white people is that it shows such 
a like a one dimensional person as opposed to like that three dimensional person that everyone else gets. So it's like you get you play to the stereotypes, you play to all of those things. And like you said, like every single year they would have had hey, how is this show going? And they would have gone, yep, that's cool, that's cool. Yep, we're still good. We're still good with the white guy putting on the Indian voice and like fitting into that. Yep, let's keep doing it. Let's keep doing it. And that's what I find so problematic because obviously who is in that room and who can say no to the people in that room making those decisions? It's it's just, yeah. And look, it's, it's also different in the context of like, if you make one show and you do one silly stereotype and they're like in for one scene, yeah. you might make a choice. It's like, we'll just get the guy who's a voice actor to do an accent or whatever, play on a stereotype, yeah. who, who cares? And you sort of get it when it's like um, an Italian mobster, when it's, you know, those sorts mm. of things. It's like, it happens, right? And you've got someone that's yeah. just basically like a ripoff of a Kennedy brother. Fine, mm. just yeah. do that, whatever you can do. Yeah. But it's like, then when the show exists for 30 years, it's like, yeah. maybe... <laughs> And you know his family, and they portray. It's like, yeah. Mate, it's like, maybe get an Indian guy for this. Like he's going to come on like three this, or four shows is, a year. Yeah. Like m- maybe we start thinking like if this is a whole character, maybe more than a stereotype. Do you just yeah. go more yeah. than stereotype guys? Like, yeah. You that you can hear that like in all the way up until now is like that someone their voice going into another octave. Like it's maybe a good idea. We should keep doing this or and and just everyone ignoring it. It's um. Yeah, look, it's it's, yeah. it's 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 a it's a I think what what your piece talked to and I think this is smart is about it is about it's it's ultimately the respect and it's the t- this is the time. Like things are happening. Yeah. This is why I've increased the output of this show. It's why I've increased the dialogue, which is why I've been more forthright with it is like this is the time to have tough conversations about race yeah. and about politics and about and just about our societal structures and like, you know, and this movie, why it deeply resonates with me is because at its core, it is speaking truth to power at its core. It's morality. Yeah. It's people being able to look mm. beyond, um, a look beyond a party politic or look beyond yeah. a, a, a sort of a, a political allegiance or mm. that, that idea. And it's to look at what is right and what is wrong and what is fair yeah. and what is, yeah. and what is not fair. And what I think is that- and, yep. and we in Australia purport to be this great egalitarian society. Mm. And I think a lot of countries around the world, when they look at us in a surface way, would say, oh, well, look, you know, yep. there's this egalitarian society. They show a lot of these signs. Yep. They're very laid back. They're all this stuff. And it's like, yeah, but it, we we do not, we, we actually need further yep. scrutiny. We need to scrutinize yep. that because it's so yep. easy and so passive to stick with the status quo and to, yeah. and to not think about those voices that are that, that you know that those that are not heard that yeah. are not heard and it's also yeah and it's also too is like we just aren't learned about our Australia's first nation history it's like one of those really weird things where we know that you know aboriginal people have been in australia for 40,000 years we know because we we sang that song like <laughs> i came from the dream time like we sing that song <laughs> in school and we also know that like federation happened in 1901 and somehow in our brains, in the collective brains, and like I as I am guilty as well, if you go, Oh, Australia's called, been called, around for forty thousand years. It's this is why in, all this change has happened. It's called yeah. indoctrination. We're indoctrinated. It's one hundred percent and this is what's so funny. And so when, you know, Aboriginal and First Nations people are talking about the stolen generation, that was only back in nineteen like the nineteen like 1960s or 19 late like that kind of time when that actually 
stopped. You know, from 1901 to like 1960s, it was all about like white assimilation, white Australian policy, which is still so new in Australia as its federation that has been started. And we forget it because we go, oh, but it's been happening for so, so long. And I'm like, no, that's only still a couple of generations back. We're not going back to 40,000 years. We're literally only going back like 120. Like, this is insane. I love saying it like this, and I heard this from a great, like I heard this from the Joe Rogan podcast. He says it sometimes, and he's like, so how old, what's the average age of a person, right? You just say, let's just say 70 for argument's sake. So yeah. you only have to go back two people for that to be the reality. He's like, you go back two people. That's fuck. He goes, that's it. It's me and two more yeah. people. That's it. And that's the reality. Yeah. And three people, it's like, if you go back yeah. three people or even yeah. four people in generational yeah. people in, 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 in terms of Australia, it's like there's yeah. some, some projections then- of like one or like somewhere between 600 thousand to 1.2 million indigenous people that occupy this continent in like 50 different or uh, uh, sorry like 50 to 100 different nations that are across the whole continent and it's like then the brits come in with their uh, their their irish convict slaves and then they enslave the indigenous population as well and it's like then they they own it and then it's like cool let's just let's just let's just get some fresh undercoat and we'll just white yep. out any of the bloodshed Everything. that's happened. Well, and we start yep. drawing pictures of a guy standing on yep. Bondi Beach in sluggers yep. and, a, and, a, and, a, yep. and a surf hat. And there it is. Yep. And all right, look, we'll use the same model and then we'll dress him yep. up in a Gallipoli outfit. And don't worry about yep. any of that 40, 40 to 150,000 yep. years of history. Nah. That's over, yeah. And that's what it's so funny about, like, even when, just to put it in the context of the Eddie Marbo decision, is, like, the Marbo decision happened in 1992, and the decision, like, overturned the idea of a terranalius, which was a legal term. So in order for something to have a legal term, it means a system had to be created in which this term was created, in that Australia was a land of no one. So up until 1992, which was only... 28 years ago, <laughs> I was still alive, <laughs> Australia legally recognised that, hey, wait, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people were on this land before we got here. And you just look at that and you just go, that is that shouldn't be in my living memory. <laughs> like, that should not exist that way. Yeah. So, of course, you look at all the other fundamental things that have changed and you look at incarceration rights of Indigenous people and you're like, of course, you had, like, generations literally stolen away. That's why it's called the stolen generation. (laughs) Like, look at all this systemic stuff that has happened in Australia's recent history. And no wonder there are First Nations people out there going, what the hell have you done to us? Like, what the hell? Like, this was our land and you took everything away and now we're the threats and you're trying to keep us down in the system. It's just... I don't know. I sometimes wonder if I'm like, am I going crazy? Because it makes sense to me, like, what is going on? But it doesn't make sense to someone else. And I'm like, can you not? And I'm like, people will get mad if I say, like, when I say this. And I'm like, I'm literally just pointing out the timeline of our history. (laughs) That's all I'm doing. I'm like, there are books that support everything I've just said. Like, why does it offend you that I'm pointing out this timeline? And it's because it doesn't fit the narrative of how you see Australia and therefore how you see yourself and other people in Australia as well. So I'm just like, the, crazy. The, the, there were great two films that kind of encapsulated a lot of this. 
only mm-hmm. about a year ago. The final quarter in the Australian Dream came out in Australia last yeah. year. And I remember seeing the final quarter in June at the Sydney Film Festival. Um, and it was, uh, I think I called it cinematic napalm. Like it was a, it was a fiery session and mm-hmm. it was, a, and, and a crowd in yep. the Sydney Film Festival who, when the story of an Australian rules footballer by the name of Adam Goods was recontextualized for that audience in that night. Basically what it showed was that this man who was an activist, who was rediscovering um, his indigenous heritage and rediscovering everything about himself and was actually awarded Australian of the year for his activism. His, his continual defiance of the systemic racism that surrounded his, his role in a club, his mm-hmm. role in sport and the media dialogue around his yep. role in the sport was blatantly like he was defined about it. It was blatantly racist. He just kept speaking out mm-hmm. about it and he wasn't yeah. hostile. He's very measured and people, it was like the age of spin. It just, yeah. it's spun. Oh, they spun, they spun him out of we control. We only boo because he's a flog and he always <laughs> goes for penalties, but we've only started booing since you started talking out about race. race. But it's because he always calls for penalties. And, That's, he's being a flog. And, oh. and, and, I, and I just remember I saw it on opening night. Mm. I went to work the next day at my day job. People were like, oh, you went to the films last night? You went, and what did you see? And I said, I saw this and that. And I said, oh, and I saw the final quarter the new Adam Goods documentary. And I said, it's absolutely stunning documentary. Mm-hmm. And, and I said, I'm looking forward to Stan Grant's. And I just, it just yeah. unbelievable. And I remember mm-hmm. them going, oh, Adam Goods. And the person I spoke to at the time was like, oh, Adam Goods, he's a, blah, 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 blah. I've heard about that <laughs> documentary. And I went, and I went, I was about to have a reaction that I could have on as candidly as I could have with you in person or on this podcast. Yeah. And they're like, what the fuck did you just say? <laughs> like, but I'm like, okay, no, you're in a day job. Try and be respectful. I was like, look, yeah. I just like, I just said, look, I think like anyone, we can be a victim of spin. And I said, what is great yeah. hindsight is 2020. Mm-hmm. What's great yeah. is with the luxury of hindsight, this thing will knock mm-hmm. you, like it will knock you out. Um, yeah. And similarly as the Australian dream did, cause they were ha- sort of happening concurrently. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I feel like they're just, I don't know, these two yep. beautiful halves of something. Yeah. They don't, they coexist yeah. for me in this same dialogue. <laughs> yeah. They don't, they're not individual entities yeah. anymore. Um, but I just remember like going to say, and then, then the dialogue changed and then a whole lot, you know, mm. then a whole bunch people of people realize. had an awakening. Well, like, oh, And this is the thing is. is I think that sometimes people need a timeline of actually looking at it and looking at it all at one go. Yes. Like in the same sense of, you know, um, little, Aboriginal history lesson back then, me watching Disclosure before, is sometimes people, because it's easy, like Adam Goods, let's remember, lived that life the whole way through it. So he got his current timeline. That's why he kept speaking out. But the other people, they just dipped in and out. So they were just like, oh, we'll get to this over here and we'll get this over there and we'll see this. But to actually sit it down and show this is all the things that happened during his career, this is what happened. You You cannot look at that and think, Oh wait! This is this everything that I thought was not what I thought. It was worse than what I thought, and this is everything that's happening. And it's so funny. Like 
I actually did my honours thesis at uni about the representation of Australian national identity in Who magazine. <laughs> and so when it comes to Australianness, people love the idea of being the mate, of being the larrikin, of being like a top bloke. This is what it means to be true blue, is to look out for your mate and do all of this stuff. And I just like when you look at Adam Goods, he should have been the ideal Australian. He was doing all the things that we love. The only he's... problem was he was Indigenous. <laughs> so it was just like, oh, no, well, no, you, you're out. It's like, go get, like, Chris Hemsworth or a Liam Hemsworth. Go get a blonde guy. <laughs> like, then we'll accept what's happening. But otherwise, it's just like, no. And you're like, well, that's what it means to be Australian, to look out for people, to be a good mate, to be a good friend. And he was still, like... His positivity through that all is I just do not understand. Of course, there were moments where he was just broken. But like you said, he was the Australian of the year and he would have had so many media things where he came out and he was still hopeful and he was still positive. He was like, he was, he was the Australian dream in doing that. And it's just like, we effectively ruined ourselves and then somehow blamed him. It was, yeah, it was insane to watch it. But amazing documentaries just to see that timeline is like, I think sometimes people do just need, like, just sit down in front of something for two hours and just watch something, and it, yeah, invariably will change how you see things. I, we haven't talked for, like, a second about this film, this text, <laughs> and that's okay, because I think that all the President's Minutes can handle it, because I've been loving what we're talking about. But one thing yeah. I want to talk about that is drastically different is mm. we are watching really what is just the beginnings and the momentum and the coverage in this film of this entire Watergate affair is mm. really just the very, very beginnings and mm. really the final revelations that come right at the death knell of this movie are mm. sort of the coffin nail that start like that sort of echoes for then yeah. two years. Yeah. And what I wonder is, you know, with this kind of like political malfeasance, it's easy. People have been following this story along, but like people are so invested in this story and some people were invested from the time these guys just started writing it, but like people yeah. followed it, mm. read the post every day, lionized yeah. these guys. There's a movie made mm. about them. There's mm. the Watergate trials. There's the trial mm. transcripts were printed as books, the nicks and tapes are printed as books, like that are as big as phone books, yep. you can read this stuff. Some of the guests yep. on this show have said that it's like stupid David Mamet, which I love. <laughs> and it's like all this stuff. It's like, I think that mm. maybe it's the 24 hour news cycle and the way that we're bombarded with everything. Maybe it's everything, but it's like yep. the consumability of a mm. story. And I think that for some of us, for our own sanity, we try and sort of yeah. be a bit more measured with how we distribute what we read, what we, mm -hmm. you know, what we consume. But it's like, I, I look back at this time and, and that's where you start to go. The 24 hour news cycle and these magazine shows mm -hmm. of pr pretty, but also yeah. empty journalists yeah. that have to find 75 ways to skin a cat Feeling that, really, that yeah. just doesn't need to be skinned any other way than mm. here's a fact, this is what it is, yeah. done. And all this like discussion and opinion and speculation mm. and nonsense and noise, mm. it's like, man, when we talk about what can actually have some affecting mm. clarity, it's like this. And yeah. and you just then look around, you, you scan 
the shows mm. that people reminisce about. And I spoke to the, like, it's got, it's all the way back at like eight episodes in at the beginning of this show. I spoke to Lee Zachariah, who's a great Aussie podcaster and producer mm. of, of, um, uh, of the project. Um, Lee just talked about like, sometimes he'd go home and watch YouTube clips of John Stewart's show like the daily show mm. around the time that Obama was elected, like like yeah. in the middle of COVID-19, like going, Oh, isn't this nice? And I think that people sort of crave, even though it's like satire, mm. people crave those programs because they like, they condense mm. what actually happens. They speak yeah. the facts and then sometimes yeah. they, and then once they've stated the facts, they might do the fun poking of like what the stupidity is, but usually they're skewering yeah. all of the dialogue around the story. Like here's what the actual yeah. facts are. We're going to skewer this yeah. around the story. And that's why people sometimes like gravitate to those satire shows and go, this is where I get my news yeah. because it's like, at least here I'm going to get the facts. Yeah. And yeah. then I'm going to see that the, all the noise and where people go, oh, the media, mm. like in inverted commas, mm. the media, that's where all the noise gets skewered, but it's just, it is just literally that demand for that format. Yeah. It's like, because if you know yeah. these episodes of this podcast go for an hour ish, if yeah. I was made to talk for eight hours <laughs> for every minute of this, of this film, it would probably devolve into just nonsense. Like it, just, we, we, uh, yeah. Yeah. And that's the same. It's like, it's the um, constant like quality over quantity. Yes. Um, so like, obviously before you could do really quality journalism because you didn't have the pressure of, you know, feeding that beast that is yes. a 24 hour news cycle. And now it's like, you've got to keep pumping it out while also media organizations are increasingly becoming more under-resourced. So it's like, you've got to do this. You've got to meet those expectations with less things. Keep doing it. Keep pummeling it. Keep pummeling it. And it's so funny that you say, like, you know, people who find relief in John Stewart is like, I love John Oliver. Like, that is oh, like, John you Oliver. just get to hear things. Like, but what is now crazy is like John Oliver sponsors the Marble League because sport has just effectively been over because of coronavirus. Yes. And so now my relief is just watching marbles run around a track and I'm like, yes, I will watch this because I don't have to think in this like 11 minute show. And then it's me just going, I wonder if the marbles are actually competing right now. And I've got like, of course they're not, they're just marbles. This is ridiculous. But it is that thing where you are constantly having to feed this beast with new content. You have to be the first, you have to do this. And then you have to, you'll see someone else do a story. So you're like, what's the new angle on this story? How do we change this? And it's like, as you said, the 20,000 ways to skin a cat or see something new is that that's what was funny while I was watching um, this movie is because admittedly it was the first time I watched it in 2020 is all I was looking at was like, wow, imagine just like working on one story for that long yeah. and just really getting to like, you know, chip away at it while also going, this is a good story, but I've got the time to keep investing in it. Like, if that was in a newsroom now, someone would be like, how's that story going? Yep, no, okay, cool. Can you sum it up? Can we just do a Q&A about where you're at right now? Can we just like, yep, cool, cool, cool. Let's, let's, let's get it done. Let's get it done. And not giving it the time to, you know, work those contacts, to build their trust, to get their more information out of it. It's like, oh, no, you have to do it now because our competitor will get it and that will be the worst thing. And it's like... So the worst thing will be getting news to the people and that news being true and we as the media acting as the fourth estate and being accountable, that's the worst thing. It's just like it becomes this competition between the media when it's just like, no, our job is to service the public with accurate and true information. Like we don't always have to be in competition all the time. Like each other is not the enemy. It's like get it out there. Like it's just, yeah. And look, what is good is 
But this movie doesn't deny that there's that competition. There's that exclusivity. Yeah. That is that yeah. stuff. But what it does is it goes. If you don't have legs on this story, we're not running. We're it. not running <laughs> it. And it's really. It's like, oh, isn't that yeah. nice? If you don't have an angle on this, yeah, it's done. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so yeah, I think I think that when, I think that, in a roundabout way. For us, we're going to go watch this scene in just a moment. Folks are going to listen along while we do that. Mm. I think that that's why I relish this movie. That's why I continue to mm. study it. I continue to feel enriched by the conversations that I get to have about it is because yeah. I go, you know, and we'll definitely talk about this. It's like some things in this movie are absolutely reflective of this time. And some, some things when you recontextualize them in 2020 and you see that some things haven't changed, they're scary. Yeah. Um, yeah. but the things that are, the things that are heartening about this movie is mm. exactly in the scene that we're going to watch in a moment, the 65th minute, a 66th minute rather, rather of this film is people who are facing the pressures of a machine who mm. are slowly awakening and are feeling a moral obligation to speak out about bad shit. And, and yeah. there's at least a moral compass and there's that that center that says this is fair or this is unfair mm -hmm. and just being able to come to that logical conclusion because I think that there's a lot of artifice and there's a lot of bullshit mm -hmm. that is across the yep. board and people like talking around in circles. But when you come like to the commonality between a lot of folk, it's just like the mm -hmm. common ground is that this is fair and this yep. isn't. And it happens on both sides of, you know, whether you're a progressive person mm -hmm. like you and I, it's like the people who are so woke that they have exploded into the universe. <laughs> like the, the, It's like, like, it's just like, we're never going to find common ground with you. And then there's the people yeah. on the far right who are like, that, that just seemingly are propagating, like, yeah. you know, they're, they're straight out of 35 Berlin, you know, like, you know what I mean? Like 36 Berlin. Well, that's, that's because they built the system. They're profiting from the system. Yeah. They don't want the system to be ruined. No, no, it's, it's, <laughs> like, no, it keeps the status and, quo. And, and it's like, it's like, and, and, and just, just every bit of dialogue that you hear, it's, there's, there is a fundamental fairness. It's like, this should, this, there are some things that we can agree on. And I think that like in this movie, what is nice is that even though people are reluctant, that they feel yeah. that. So look, I'm loving this. It's so good to talk to you yeah. again. And look, and, and can you, well, can you imagine that we have talked so much about so many things um, and not once have you mentioned talked about Drag the actual. Race. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. I mean uh, the actual film. Um, but it's no. I know you meant the film, and I was like, "Oh, RuPaul's Drag Race." <laughs> no, we absolutely. I meant the film. So, folks, Tali and I are going to listen along. Oh, Tali and I are going to watch this minute together. You guys are going to listen along at home, and then we're going to come back and unpack it because it is a great. It's a it's a, a scene that basically opens with a door closing in their face, and then a door also closing in their face is the the scene, but it's how the door is closed in their face, which I think is really beautiful. So let's uh, check this out and then we're going to come back and talk about it. Could you spin yes. yes. Hi. Hi. Miss Milan, Betty Milan. Mm -hmm. I'm Bob Woodward, Carl Bernstein. We're from the Washington Post. Oh, We'd like I know you're trying to do your job. I mean, you don't understand the pressure that we're under. I, just take a couple seconds. Uh, we could just come in for a couple oh, seconds. Oh, no. No, I, I really No, we don't I, want to come in. We uh, we understand that there was uh, um, some documents that were shredded at the committee. Uh, well, there uh, there's often shredding. I mean, we do that a lot. Were you there during the shredding? Yes, I was. Nice. Were there any department heads uh, from the committee who were also present? Uh, yes. Mr. Mitchell came in one night. Uh, John Mitchell? <laughs> yes. The Attorney General? Uh-huh. 
he was carrying a ring <laughs> over his, his head, you know, because it was, I mean, I thought he was going to go, <laughs> but, uh, I, Did you supervise the shredding? Uh, I, I just, can I not answer any more questions? I just do not, okay? Maybe I could call you. It's, it's, uh, are you being told not to talk? Will you call? I don't know. I love, love, love a couple of things in that movie. I love so much of everything in this movie. Yep. But uh, one thing I'd, I'd love is the wherewithal for Woodward to sort of smile and go, are there any department heads? And just sort of enjoy yes. her recounting of the story and smiling back at mm. her and watching her just enjoy tell the story. And then the great yeah. thing is, and this is Hoffman's great approach with Bernstein is sort of going is sort of smiling and going, oh, I see what he's doing here. And then they start doing it together. Did he supervise yep. the shredding? Oh, I'd rather yep. not talk about it. It's it's a pretty special, it's a pretty special mm. minute and about the reluctance of people who are on the inside and seeing things that are a bit gnarly going yep. on and a lot of yep. pressure not to speak out mm. about the system. Yeah. What protected. was so amazing? Yeah, what was so amazing, I'm so happy you picked a scene for me that had a woman in it. <laughs> like, hey, there's not many. One, like, yeah, well, this is, well, exactly. But what I really, like, as a woman watching it is, um, like, I was so angry in the couple of minutes before that scene took place. Um, and because that was when they went up to Kate Eddy because her fiance was a member of Creep. And so they were like, which was, of Lindsay course, Kratz. the committee for the real, real, real election of the president. And so they kind of did this weird bad cop, good cop kind of situation. And it was obviously um, Woodward who realized that she was feeling reluctant, that she didn't want to expose her then broken up with fiance because it would mean that she would have to see him in person. She obviously looked like she was not comfortable in doing that. And so he said, okay, we're going to walk away while obviously Bernstein was still being bad cop in that situation. Yes. And so I think that the fact that Woodward let her be, I realize that you're not, you're uncomfortable and we don't want to put you in a position to do that is what eventually made her give them the lift of the names, which then brought us to um, Betty Milland. So they're obviously trying to get stands, and that was the, like the moment before that scene as well, where they're like, we're trying to get to this really powerful guy, but obviously all the men around him are not going to talk. Who are we going to talk to? I know, a secretary, <laughs> i.e. a woman. Yeah. <laughs> so, there was, so there was, even in that, there was real plotting, not plotting, but just going... If you're looking for, and not, you know, no offence to men, but if you're looking for the gender that is more likely to speak out for what is right and more likely not to want to defend themselves but speak out for the greater good, I think you can say that women will more likely do that and I think that that's what they recognise. So when they knock and, on Betty's door... And also right at that moment in time, especially, yeah. they are... There is never a concern... I mean, look, you only... You, Harvey Weinstein in the nineties had no concern about how yep. he was acting in front of women who he employed yep. or who, you know, whatever the case may be. So you imagine in the seventies, yep. these women are invisible. Like if yep. you've seen an episode yep. of Mad Men, it's like guys yep. are acting flagrantly in front of them, doing whatever yep. the hell they want to yep. do. They want. Yeah. And, and there's no, they're and not thinking about it. The and, and they knew it was they're wrong. Witnesses. They're the witnesses. Yep. Exactly. So they're the ones who hold all the secrets. Can I just like throw a little fun aside? I used to work at Kmart and I once had this elderly oh man God. come through my register and he said to me, he's like, 
you are pretty enough to be a secretary. And I literally think he thought that that was a compliment when he said it to me, <laughs> which just goes to show like his time and his frame where he was just like, the, the most that a woman can do is be a man's secretary um, and be that trusted person in his work life that is literally his work wife and be that kind of thing where it's like, I'm going to know all the secrets and do all those things, but you also had to look a certain way. So like when he said that to me, I was just like, that you think is the most glamorous job a woman can do, which would be the highest form of flattery, was to be called someone that you could be a secretary if you wanted to. And like, no offense to secretaries, but I'm just kind of highlighting a way of thinking that was back then. And I imagine you'd be going, thanks? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I was like, I work at a register at Kmart. I feel like I am the secretary (laughs) of this store right now. Um, But it was really amazing watching that, 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 Seen and seeing how you could tell, like you could tell, even though it was just in a minute, that it was just this, oh, this might be my opportunity to speak out, but I know I'm going to get in trouble, but I'm going to try and help. And even when she was talking about the hat and she's making the joke, is she's trying to kind of like lighten this mood. And while also I think a little bit ascertain what the motives of these two men were and going, can I trust you? Like even when she said, can I call you later? Like that may have been an opportunity where she would have come back later and spoke out like if she wanted to. Um, But as you were also saying, like Woodward and Bernstein, they were like, let's go along with what you're saying, but still be pressing our questions. There was no like, you know, little small chat, like, as a radio producer, when I'm working with talent or just presenters or just anything, I always say that it's like I just manage people's egos. So, like, I ring someone up and I'm like, you're the best person to come in and do this job. Like, And it's all the small talk is not actually about the interview. No. It's just about convincing them about why they're the best person and why they need to speak. So, in that scene, there was none of that. There was also, like, I've heard producers guilt people to come in in as talent going, well, you need to speak up because you need to do this for your community and we're giving you the platform to do it and you need to do it. And in this scene, there was none of that. It was just straight to the, I'm still going to ask you questions. You're still going to tell me a story in a kind of animated way. And we're still going to try and find out, like, who was there when the shredding was happened? Did they tell you to do it? Have they told you not to speak out? They're still asking all the journalistic, you know, the who, what, why, where, and when, but and just doing it. In, and yeah. they, they are, it is such a feel out. So firstly, yeah. what is so cool, and you mentioned, and, and I had such a great conversation about it already um, with Courtney Howard, which folks will get to listen to that, that Lindsay Krause scene. And it's, it's in 30 seconds, which is even more amazing. Yeah. The K80 scene that you see her realize the gravity mm-hmm. of what she's being asked to do. And then would realizing the burden that they're putting on this person. Yeah. They're like, and even though, and this is the great thing about Bernstein, Hoffman's Bernstein is like, he has no qualms about ever asking a person to do anything like that. I think Woodward is yep. the better guy at extracting information from someone in a slow yep. manner. And they kind of learn the yep. techniques from one another, either direct yep. or slowness. And in this yep. scene, it's Valerie Curtin who plays, um, uh, who plays Betty Milland. And she's there. We're in the scene. We're doing this where mm-hmm. she's having this conversation and you can tell that she does not want to say a word here. And so mm. the fact that they're just kind of like, oh, were you there shredding? They still don't yeah. really know what they're shredding. They're like, what are they shredding? Yeah. Like yeah. we can assume yeah. that it's money related and accounting related. Yeah. And they're like, people are around. But right now I think what is so wonderful about her performance is that she wants to be cordial. She wants to be a witness. She wants mm. to tell them stuff. But 
you are yep. now starting to see that the pressure is hitting these people at home. They're like, yep. people don't want to see me. And, you know, hashtag spoilers of a movie that's almost 50 years old. <laughs> there's another follow-up moment with mm. Valerie Curtin's yep. Betty Millen yep. that comes up and mm. you see the ramifications of them even just yep. asking this line of questions. And right now in the context of this film and in the context of the history, these guys are some of the only guys that are on this Watergate beat in Washington. They're like yep. two of five and they're gathering information and they don't mm -hmm. really know what the story's telling them, but yep. they're trying really hard. And it's, yep. I, I love watching her. I love watching them use their charm because mm -hmm. yep. the harshness doesn't work. And look, yep. if Robert Redford was smiling at me, I'd tell him fucking anything. <laughs> I'd tell him anything. What do you want to know, my friend? You are beautiful, right? And and, yeah. and and the reality of that situation is, yeah, he's very charming, you mm. know, really great at extracting that stuff. But at the same time, like, there's a realization, like, oh, shit, the charm is, the charm is yeah. just actually to access other information. What you want to, yeah, yeah. And it's so, like, this is what you, as a journalist, you have to be a little bit charming. Like you literally do, because if you're not, people are going to think you're an asshole and they're just going to go, no, like, no, I'm not going to happen that. Even if it is those people who pressure people to come on, they, they still have to have an element of charm to them. Yes. And what I think is also so funny about watching that scene then is that they're actually at her house. They are on her door and they yeah. are knocking on her door. At and night. They're at night. At night in her private space and they're going there. And so, of course, like, you will be reluctant to anyone who you don't know at your door at that time, like, two men, I'm you're a woman, like, what's Uber going driver. on? Exactly. You know, like, exactly. I know he's yeah. there at the door and you're like, hey, yeah. man, what's up? Maybe it's yeah. COVID-19. It's like, hey, man, what's up? Yeah. Yep, thanks. You know, tips yeah. sometimes. Yep, cool, see ya. Yeah. Whatever. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, it, yeah. I, I get it. Yeah, and so even just watching that scene and going in that moment, like, obviously, back in the 70s, people probably rocked up at people's doors and they didn't just, you know, send texts or, you know, tweet at them or do anything like that. But it was, like, really amazing just to watch her interaction. And I just, like, obviously, I kept sympathizing with her to be like, how would I be feeling in that moment? Like, how is this you? my chance to talk? But this is the thing is, like, would this be, would I see this as my chance to say what I know? Because, you know, sometimes when a guilt sits with you, you want a place to um, say it and say it out loud. And that's what happens later in the movie when, you know, when the grand jury was like, well, I was happy to talk, but no one asked me the question. So it was never <laughs> presented. It's like, if in that situation, that was the moment where I felt like, oh, it's like the burden of this is too much to carry. Like, this is an ideal opportunity. But also, too, if people are telling you don't say anything, you're like, wait, am I in danger right now? Like, is my life? It's that, it's that constant way up of going what is the greater good and what is my personal sacrifice? And can I do, like, can I do what I need to do without it hurting me too much? And I think that for me in that moment, I could see her kind of wrestling with that. I think the fact that she was trying to have a joke was trying to just kind of be like a, I know I'm in a shit situation. Like, I know that this is not ideal. I know, but like, maybe just maybe maybe I'll be able to help you like I can't right now but then also maybe that's another part of being a woman where you're just like oh no call me later because you know I don't want to say no to you in any way or any chance or anything <laughs> like that and like you say as like you know a couple of scenes later her reaction is very different to that interaction that we um 
that we just saw. But I think it was really interesting to be like that, that, that the, the, like even though women were not represented very much in the film at all, would never pass the Bechdel test, they played really pivotal moments in terms of getting information or creating those kind of things. As you were saying, they were just, they felt it in their gut that a story was there. They didn't have anything concrete, but it was just, um, the women in that story just kind of kept moving it along and letting them know, yep, no, keep going, keep going, keep going. So, yeah, it was a really... The pivotal scene of this movie is with Jane Alexander's character, who's the bookkeeper, mm-hmm. yeah, Bernstein, yeah, and she was Oscar yep. nominated for the role. And I think that, yeah, um, although, um, I think it's a you know, it's a cre- it's a credit to this movie that it does that, and obviously it's being representative. You know, we, we yep. talked a little bit just before we went to the the clip. It is representative of the time to have a not many people of color. Not many yeah. women, mostly white, 30s to 60-odd, so, you know, 50s, yeah. uh, white journalist room, you know, uh, yeah. in the Washington Post at that time, that is extremely yeah. authentic and reflective of the time. Yeah, 100. It was funny. Even when I was watching it, I was like, oh, this has, like, Anchorman vibes because it's the same kind of newsroom yeah. and be like, what? A woman can do the news? Like, that was very much that time. So, like, and that's what I mean is, like, when you look at that, you go, oh, there are no women, there are no people of colour, and you go, oh, but wait, that was back at the time where that was legitimately the norm. And you kind of excuse it. Yeah, whereas, like, right now, it's very similar still. That's 48 years years ago. (laughs) Oh, my God. Wow. No, wait. Yeah. Oh, wow. Wow, cool. Not not the time that the movie was produced, but the time that it's set. But at the time of that newsroom, yeah. The time of that newsroom, 72, like they're they're shooting this in, uh, you know, it's it's in production in um, 75, it's released in 76. So they're they're recreating a 75 newsroom. And so everything is of that time. Like you've got the typewriters. You've got the type, you've got everything else that, you know, where that, and that's what's funny is like, we've made such great technological advancements (laughs) in newsrooms. (laughs) Like, why haven't we done the other things as well? I don't know. And (laughs) I I think, I think you're right about this, this scene with Valerie Curtin. I love her performance here because it is Mm. in the privacy of her own home. This is the, like the next scene with her is completely a realization of her worst fears. And it's a validation yep. of the guy's suspicions that these guys in Crete are literally mm. are being watched by people from yep. the organization and are being told. And if people are going to mm. their houses that shouldn't be there, they're being watched and they're being bullied or, yep. you know, or threatened or whatever the case may be. Yep. And I think, so the second scene is, is absolutely a validation of fears and yeah, and whomever I have for that next minute, um, and you guys will have to look forward to listening to that, you'll see yep. us unpack that in the, in the upcoming scene. But I love this scene because it mm-hmm. is in the privacy of your own home and in the privacy of your own space, yep. you can start to think about things like, this yep. is the right time for me to say this. This is yep. the right, th- these guys are the right. And then yep. when you come to, when she's at the precipice of like, mm-hmm. oh shit, if I go beyond who what? was there yep. when things were shredded, the next logical question is like, what was shredded? What was shredded? Yeah, yeah. And then you can almost see her preemptive awakening of like, oh, they've set the scene. They know we shred yeah. stuff. They know we shred stuff yeah. a lot. Yeah. I've yeah. already said too much. We shred stuff a lot yeah. and all the yeah. bosses are around when we shred stuff. <laughs> yeah. The next question is this. And so when what, that happened, yeah. And like yeah. you said, I and- think 
you nailed it in a way that I've never heard it put before, which is a woman of this time is wanting to please and, and not to just say no. She's wanting to do something, so the way that she kind of exits yeah. the conversation is like, "Oh, I'll try and call you." And they go, "Are you going to call us?" And is it, we miss we miss the final sort of punctuation gesture of yeah. hers at the end. But it's like, no, like no, she's, no. <laughs> it's like yeah. no, like I don't want to say yeah. no straight out, but yeah. there's no way I'm calling you. Like it's we can't we can't yeah. continue this conversation. It's not yeah, and it's one of those things about that power dynamic as well. Yeah. Is that even in that is that she still knew that there was someone in, in her work life, there were people in her work life that were still more powerful than her. So even as she's kind of agreeing and giving them information, like, you know, as you watch that scene, you're like, she's the one who's going to break it open. She's the one who's giving it. And it's like, oh, no, 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 she's not. Um, but it is really powerful to watch her have those moments where it's just like, oh, wait, like as a journalist, you're confirming things. You're confirming that, you know, the attorney general is in the room. You're confirming that, you know, they know that shredding was happening. And it's one of those things where like, I often think that a, a talent when you're like just asking questions about a story and like, you know, sometimes as a journalist, I just have a thought bubble of an idea and then I contact someone to be like, is the thought bubble of my idea connected to this news story of what's going on? Most of the times, like people will just go, no, like that there's nothing no. in that. Or they, like they, people will either kill a story because there's nothing there or they'll kill a story because there is something there and they just want yeah. you to work for it. Like it's not that easy. <laughs> but then other times or, too. Or, or, there's too mu- or there's too much there. If, if it's an editor in your own newsroom yeah. and you're like, there's too – that's going to take you too much time. Move on. Yeah, it's Move like on. get the get the go get the cat story. This is easier. Like go <laughs> no work on that one. But it is one of those things where in that moment too is like sometimes as a journalist you're asking one of those fishing questions, which sometimes makes your talent think you know more than your questions are letting you know on. So she very easily could have slipped at any moment, not knowing the parameters of what they knew, and also like. As I said, let's remember, they knocked on her door at night time. It's not as if she was sitting there going, okay, at, you know, at nine o'clock, I'm going to have this interview with these two journalists. Like, these are the questions that I'm preparing to answer. This is what I'm going to say. This is it. But every part of this happened completely spontaneously for her in her life. And she had to navigate that space to be like, a, okay, what do I do? How do I do this? How do I still seem like a nice person? But how do I keep my job? How do I keep myself? safe and she's having to do this in like that one minute scene which is just pretty impressive because I like if it was me and someone knocked on my door right now (laughs) and said hey I'm a journalist I've got some questions my immediate response would be like no like call back tomorrow in in, in 2020 it's it's like get away from my house oh yeah I'm not opening the door Exactly. Or if you're a journalist and a PR person's pitching you something, you're like, yeah, cool, cool, cool. If you just want to send me an email just with the details of that, like it's the the best brush off ever. It's like you're not committing to anything, but like, can you just send me an email of your thoughts? And like, it's not as if she's going to say that. She's like, oh, can you just get like write me a letter tomorrow and then I'll think about it and I will have a prepared way to do this. The brush off for her is like, can you give me the phone number? Like that's her tactical brush off at the end. Yeah. But these guys, like in the run up of this movie, in the context of this moment, these are guys who have been chomping at the bit for now weeks to get a list of these employees. And so now when they're in front of them, someone actually opens the door Yeah. right now at this moment, the finesse of how to get the information out of these people isn't there. And so then Mm. when they 
are starting to get to it. They're starting to do it. They're starting to find it. It's yeah. all a bit of a clumsy thing. It's all a bit of a clumsy thing. Yeah. And it's and and that's what I love about looking at it now and why it is deeply antiquated in 2020 yeah. is because we have all these mechanisms, these technological divides that go, don't fucking come to my house. Like, and especially yeah. now in COVID-19, it's like, no one's knocking on my door. Absolutely, you know. <laughs> Uh, like journalists aren't even leaving their house right step, now. Step like, around to the window so I can look at you. No, yeah, we're not having yeah, a dialogue exactly. right now. Um, yeah, and and so, so that's what I, yeah, and that's what I find so interesting about those scenes is what interests me are the things that you don't see. Is like Bernstein and Woodward before they got out of the car in front of her house, were coming up with a plan of how they would do this. Yes. Like and like to me. It's like, a, well, if she if she starts abruptly, we'll do this play. And if we do this, we'll do this play. It's like almost sport in the way that they would have navigated how to deal with talent to get the answers what they want. is like they would have gone, because you obviously can't go to someone and go, hey, tell us the whole story. But it's like, let's just pick away. At like, so they would have chosen, okay, this person, we know this. Let's try and like do this angle for what's going on. And I think that that's really important. And that's where I just often come back to, you know, the psychology of journalism and getting stories by working with people and like, you know, talking about that charm and doing all those things. And you're so right. All of those things. And mm. when you're not well known, like when yeah. you're not a well-known entity, um, mm. at whether, whether a subject knows you or not, I think yeah. you nailed it is that charm is so important in those early interactions because it's like yeah. you have to you have to be able to engage a person and charm them mm. even if you are asking the uncomfortable more importantly yeah. even if you're asking an uncomfortable question you're brave enough at that time whereas once yeah. someone knows you reputationally and yeah. if you then go and be forthright like there's you know, my, yeah. one of my favorite examples and one of my favorite films of all time in Michael Mann's movie The Insider she made after he made heat. There's mm -hmm. a great question from Christopher Plummer, who's playing a journalist, Mike Wallace for 60 minutes. And he's sitting yeah. down in front of a, like he's sitting down in front of a, 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 a Taliban leader, I believe at the time. And he's like, are you a terrorist? Like he's, uh, he goes straight out and he, yeah. as, as Mike yeah. Wallace, he goes, are you a terrorist? And the guy goes, no. And it's like, he's asking the forthright question because it's the question that ev ha everyone has in their mind, uh, but, yeah. he's, but he's got like, if you are that level, like you're well known and yep. definitely those guys now, the real life, what well, wouldn't yep. say could sit in front of a big subject and ask the and most say difficult whatever question. they want. Yeah. And, and the charm or the edge or none of it has to be yep. there. And you can see that that's Bernstein, yep. like his experience of like on the ground, he's, he wants to just ask yep. a tough question and people to get to it. And what Woodward knows from being this sort of waspy Midwestern American yep. is, is like, Oh, I'm just like, I have to charm the pants off of you. And yep. that's the way that yep. I'm going to get this done. And how those, yep. both those guys do that yep. is so beautiful. So yep. I, I think that, yeah, that like the charm, you cannot, you cannot and understate the necessity for charm. Yeah. Yeah. And it both like fundamentally comes down to trust like the trust in the person. So if you're yeah. charming someone, you're you're creating that trust. Or if you're an experienced journalist, journalist, you've built that trust. Yes. So you can ask those questions because it is based on that trust. And even when you were just talking about the charming, I was just weirdly thinking of Donald Trump and Fox and Friends. I was like, of course that's where he goes. 
because they play to what he likes to hear, and that is good things about himself. So, of course, if you want the ear of the president, just say really nice stuff to him and, you know, hate all the things. And so it's like, it's that idea of like, how do you get your talent to work for you in that moment of what, when you're uncovering something and how much more important that work is when you are still in that digging work stage, because the only way that you'll get that information is if you have built that trust through charm, through experience. That's the only way that, that that will happen. And the moment that that trust is broken, that line is just dead for you. So you really have to work how you're going to get it. And that's why as a team, they worked so well because they worked off each other's strengths and off each other's like, oh, okay, I noticed from that interaction you did this and it got this result. So maybe I'll soften sometimes, but also I'll harden it other times as well. And so that's why I think it was also really powerful to watch, like just – Two journalists go at a story and be so committed to it. And even when, you know, their newsroom editors were like, do you believe in this? It's like, yep, I do, I do. And they're like, well, we don't. It's like the both of them were so much on the same page, even though at the start they seemed so unlikely. It's that they both respected each other as well. So they knew that, you know, in moments too that they could go off and, you know, chase their own leads in their own way. And I think that they even knew that they that like the other one wasn't going to burn the talent with their approach because they had developed this kind of way to like, we need this information. This is how we're going to get it. And they played the long game. They knew that they were playing the long game and they were willing to play the long game. So that is also very impressive. And I think, you know, you talk about, it's implicit in this scene and it's implicit in so many of the scenes, but it is so beautiful when they're, when they are, when you do get to see that moment of strategy before they see the bookkeeper the second time. Okay. No, yeah. I'm going to say, no. So wait, yeah. I'm going to say this. And like, it, that's just such a perfect touch. Cause it's like, yeah. then for every other scene, when you either are yeah. seeing this movie for the first time or yeah. especially when you revisit it and when you revisit yeah. it as many times as I've revisited it, <laughs> it's like, you're going, I love that now every single interaction, which is all the more heartbreaking when the door is just simply closed yep. in their face, they have thought yeah. about how they're yep. going to approach every dialogue, how yep. it's going to happen. Yep. And sometimes they, it's in a bit of a flow state, but later on yep. as they get better at it, it's like, no, they're strategizing every single one of these things. It's uh, yeah. It's- yep. It was, yeah. And I think that too, like it was set up for me just right in the court case when Bob Wood was assigned that case where it was just, you know, five people in court, like go see if there's a story there. That was effectively, you know, the kitten story, go do the court beat, see whatever's <laughs> going on. And I think that it just went to show his like intrinsic way that he knew what a story was, that he's like, something is here because why are these five FBI guys or who like have been associated with the FBI? CIA, all FBI. In this, yeah, exactly. Anarchists. Why are they all... Yeah, why are they all in this moment right now? And that's why I think that, you know, Bernstein, is, even though he was more the experienced journo, I think that there was a part of him that went, oh, wait, I trust your newsiness. I trust that, you know, I'm now hearing what's going on and well done for picking up on that. And I think that that also built trust between the two of them so that they could go forward and, you know, tell the rest of the story and do it for the long run, that they knew that this is what was going on. So... You know, it's an amazing story and it's incredible. And what I also love so much about the film is that, you know, at the end of it, like, as you said, spoiler alert, everyone already knows what's going on, (laughs) is like Nixon gets selected. So, you know, generally the trope of the movie is like you feed it out until all the drama happens, until he resigns. But it was so powerful to be like, 
you've watched two hours and at the end of the movie, technically, has anything yet changed? Oh, no, but what? Wait to see all the things that will unfold. The ripple effect of, you know, all this hard work and this is what's going to happen. That you, again, and as we were talking before about those timelines and about those histories, that typewriter at the end was that timeline, was the rest of everything that happened after that. And you just looked at that and you went, and that's all you needed because everyone also knew the story going in. So you didn't need to tell that part, tell the part of it about how it all became uncovered. And also, like, it's so funny. Often it's movies like this that make people want to become a journalist because they see it. It's very much like To Kill a Mockingbird and Atticus Finch and you see him in the courtroom and you're like, yes, I'm going to become a lawyer. I have absolutely no doubt that there are journalists who watch this movie and we're like, I'm going to be a journalist. I'm going to hold people to account. I'm going to be that investigative person and I'm going to bring down a corrupt government because that goes back to this idea of fairness and about being right and being on the right side of right as well. Yeah. Um, and so I think that it, it just was like, I'm, I'm kind of mad at myself that I didn't watch it earlier than this, <laughs> but it was like a really, I think, a powerful journalism movie. When I think of journalism movies, I think of, you know, breaking in the shattered glass, that yeah. Stephen Glass expose of like how that was uncovered. That's obviously bad journalism <laughs> when, like, when you're just making up a cautionary, stories. A cautionary tale. <laughs> a cautionary tale, I'll never do that. But this was like, a real nice wing and like the other thing too I just loved the mundaneness of journalism I think that sometimes it gets romanticised in in the media as it reports on itself to be like yeah this is what we're doing and stuff like that is sometimes you are just going through reports or like when they were in the library just going through this ridiculously mundane thing phone books Exactly, exactly and so that's where that's what I really liked about the movie too is that it kind of showed just sometimes when you are working on these huge stories is that the legwork that goes into it is not that glamorous. <laughs> so it's like obviously the impact is that they're all working because – and the reason why they keep doing it is because they're like there is something – someone needs to be held accountable right now and it is our job to you know figure out who it is and why they should need to do it. And so it was just really powerful to watch to be like, yes, that is that is what journalism is, doing those kind of things. Of course, not everyone's going to have their own Watergate in their journalistic career, um, but there, you will have something that you just work at and you're really proud of and obviously, you know, won't befall an American president, but it is one of those things where you just go, that's why you do the job because you have to love, you kind of have to love the rejection, you have to love the hard work, you have to love, the scrutiny you have you have to love people telling you you're crap at your job um you have to love all of that to be a journalist and i think that that's why so many journalists speak out as, as we were talking before about representation is because if you've got more people in the in the newsroom telling their stories then that gives you a richer idea of what's going on out there and it's also holding more people to account so that we can have a just and fairer society which you know always sounds very idealistic when i say it but like God damn it. That's the, that's the aspiration. <laughs> Why and, can't that happen? And, you know, you know, we're nearly 50 years away from this movie and this story, and um, uh, I read a great tweet, and I'm going to quote it to you. I think it's a, almost a great way to wrap up. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read firstly my tweet of my friend Sean Burns, great Bostonian film critic and an absolute um, uh, just he's hilarious, and he's been on the show. He, he quoted an article today written by Carl mm. Bernstein, the man, Carl Bernstein yeah. for CNN.com. Yeah. Um, yeah. 
Um, and Sean's tweet was, there's so much in this article that's pure nightmare fuel and dire confirmation of our worst fears, yet I come away from it completely in awe of Carl Bernstein writing a 109-word lead like an absolute fucking legend. And the story is, on CNN.com, is from pandering to Putin to abusing allies and ignoring his own advisors, Trump's phone calls alarm US officials. And the 109-word lead I'm going to read to you, it says, in yeah. hundreds of highly classified phone calls with foreign heads of state, President Donald Trump was so consistently unprepared for discussion of serious issues, so often outplayed in his conversations with powerful leaders like Russian President Vladimir Putin and Turkish President Recap Erdogan, and so abusive to leaders of America's principal allies that the calls helped convince some senior U.S. officials, including his former secretaries of state and defense, two national security advisors, and his longest-serving chief of staff, that the president himself posed the danger to the national security of the United States, according to the White House and intelligence officials intimately familiar with the contents of the conversations. A fucking badass, a fucking badass 50 years after he took down one president, he's still writing 109 word fiery leads for CNN talking yeah. about that. If he was, if you want a superhero who is a journalist, like forget about Clark Kent. It's <laughs> 100%. Still about us. Tali, this has been such a rich and awesome convo. And um, I, I can't tell you how excited I was to talk to you because it's been a long time to uh, for us to shoot yeah. the shit over a pop culture topic. But um, it's so awesome to hear you fighting your own little fight for truth to power at the moment and, uh, and yeah. to see you... Um, taking no shit um it's awesome yeah. and it's great to talk and it's to you also, like and what i love is like you are also achieving great things i know that you were just talking about your child but like <laughs> how many awards did one <laughs> minute win like you are also <laughs> kicking goals right? like this is insane i like i feel very enriched that i get to interact with people like you who are just absolutely freaking killing it and so yeah i'm just as much in awe of you and what you are doing oh, while also having children because like Thank God I don't have any dependents <laughs> to rely on. Because <laughs> I can only focus on one thing at a time. You, so constantly you just keep Alan. You just keep focusing on yourself. I'm so grateful to have a, a, an amazing uh, wife and uh, and mother of my children that uh, significantly yes. picks up the slack for me <laughs> as I'm recording podcasts at all hours of the day and night. Um, but uh, So I appreciate her, but I appreciate all those lovely things. And uh, you're the best. And thank you yep. so much for being a part you of the show. You are too. Excellent. Thanks, Blake. I mean, is she something or is she something? My friend, Tali Oletia, if you want to find her on the Twitter sphere, the best place to find her is at T-A-L-I. So she abbreviates her name here. It's at T-A-L-I-A-U-A-L-I-T-I-A. Um, I follow her. She'll be tagged on the All the President's Minutes post on Twitter if you want to source that. Um, she is also the host of the Pacific Mornings uh, program on ABC, which you can find online. That's also linked in the description of the show. Uh, very, very good value. Keep an eye out on her on Twitter. Um, uh, she's occasionally experimenting with TikTok dancers as well, which is also uh, quite a source of amusement and joy during this time. Tali, thank you so much for being a part of the show. You're awesome. Guys, thank you so much for listening to all the President's Minutes. And thank you so much for following One Heat Minute Productions. If you can do one thing for me at the end of this episode, it is to like, rate, and review 
this show. I mean, there I know how many of you guys listen and I appreciate and Travis and I and Katie and I and Maria and I all appreciate just how much you've listened to Josie in the podcast, Miami Nice, Increment Vice, All the President's Minutes and obviously Last 12 Minutes of the Mohicans and One Heat Minute. We would love you if you could, if you haven't yet, take a couple of minutes, go hit us up on a rating on iTunes, go hit us up with a review. It helps massively. Um, so we don't want any of your cash right now, not for this episode. If you've got a little bit of extra cash and you're in Sydney and you want to talk to our lovely friends at Bella Catering, please do that. But rate, review, we would love you to do that. And if it's about one of the shows that's your favorite, that would be such a help as well. So rate, review, we love you. Thank you so much for listening. We hope you enjoyed this episode. A whole stack of great episodes coming up. Thanks for listening to all the President's Minutes. We'll catch you later.